Thanks very much, Dean. Now, if you want to turn again to, uh, to John, if you have a scripture, a couple of scriptures with you. Um, I read an article um, recently by a, a guy called Chris Watkins. He's an English guy who's um, an academic based in Australia. And he made the point that if we approach somebody who's not a Christian today, and we said something like this, we said, you need to trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation. If we said that, it's the kind of thing which is, you know, often being said in a place like Balamina, Connor, you know, down through the years. If we said that to someone today in the West, their immediate reaction possibly ranged from curiosity, you know, they, they don't really know what you're talking about, right through to complete rejection, hatred even. Uh, my son is um, uh, he's uh, nearly give a prophetic word there. I nearly said he's a minister. He's not a minister. Um, he may be. Um, he's, he's a student at Trinity College in Dublin. And, you know, the atmosphere down there in respect of the gospel is very, very different from up here. A very, you know, hostile uh, against the gospel. And so if you, if you came up to someone and you said, you need to trust in Jesus Christ for salvation, Watkins says, you know, people... People say they trust. Well, trust is for gullible people. The salvation. Salvation from what? I mean, I, I, I'm fine. I don't need salvation. I go to the gym. I've got money in the bank. And then evangelism is, is uh, kind of seen as exploiting the weak or exploiting the vulnerable. And Watkins says there are lots and lots of different reasons why this is the case. Um, one of the main reasons is, and you, I hope you understand uh, me when I say this to you, I, th I think it's pretty obvious, that the culture in which we live categorizes people, teaches people, informs people to such a deep and pervasive extent from the moment that people wake up to the moment they go to sleep. It's YouTube, it's TikTok, it's Instagram. Your minister was talking about these things uh, in our church um, uh, this morning. And, and people are bombarded with choices, bombarded with news, bombarded with information. And then, of course, alongside that, what you have is the fragmentation of a lot of the institutions that we just take for granted, like the traditional family or uh, the traditional workplace or educational institutions. And then we have the sexual revolution and the whole question of identity. And, you know, the alphabet letters grow on the end of the LGBTQ+, and it just gets longer and longer and longer. Nobody seems to speak with authority. We seem to live in a world of such fast-paced change and flux. And the average Christian would be forgiven for thinking that there's absolutely nothing we can do about it. It's like putting your finger in the dam. Well, is that so? Is that really so? You know, when I talk to Christians today, I really get the impression that people are scared, that people are uncertain about culture change and the situation that we're in, certainly in the West. Well, the Bible says that there's nothing new under the sun. And the Apostle John, when he's writing near his death at the end of the first century, you know, none of, none of these contemporary challenges that we face would have caught him by surprise at all. Certainly, the technology and the speed with which things are communicated by these devices, that would, be, that would have mesmerized the New Testament church. And it mesmerizes us, doesn't it? artificial intelligence, you know, all the kind of stuff coming down the lines. It, it bamboozles us. But 
But the challenge against God and the challenge against the message of the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ, that would not have surprised John or the early New Testament church at all. And the reason why is because the first century was a time of many gods and many religions. It was a time of extreme immorality, in, in some senses actually worse than, than the situation we're in today in the West. It was a time of great human abuse, uh, economic abuse and injustice. Church were a minority, even though they were growing, they were a minority. The gospel was under threat, was challenged all of the time. Now, what was the Apostle John's response to all of this? His response was simple. He said that loving truth changes lives in a challenging age. Loving truth changes lives in a challenging age. Now, I've got four points today. I should really have sent them through for your overhead, uh, but uh, four fairly simple points um, from the text as we think about this truth, this truth that changes lives in a challenging age. The first, the first thing John teaches here is in verses one to three that we are loved by God. That's our primary identity, that we're loved by God. And if you look at verses 1 to 3, they're the elect, the elder to the elect lady or the chosen lady and her children whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. So, John's writing to the church, probably the church in Ephesus, and he describes them as the chosen lady or the elect lady. You see that imagery there, that feminine language, um, it's, it's a beautiful way in which the church are described. The church are described elsewhere as the bride of Christ. And Jesus loves his bride. Um, the last time I was here actually was a couple of summers ago to do a wedding. It was a great occasion despite the COVID restrictions. And the groom stands at the front and he sees the bride walking down and she's beautiful. And he looks at her and he, he, he just can't wait to be married to her. And this is a picture of Christ and his elect lady, his chosen lady for all of our sins, for all of the filthy rags of our unrighteousness and our selfishness. Jesus looks at us and he loves us. He wants to ravage his church. He desires us so strongly. And the church that Jesus loves, John loves, and that's a great marker for us, isn't it? Whoever Jesus loves, we love. And we often struggle to do that, don't we, in, in church? But not only does John love this church uh, that he writes to and to John, the church who loved Jesus, but also all, he says, who know the truth. He says in verse 1, anywhere and everywhere. And then he gives two reasons why in verse 2, because the truth abides in the church. He says that because of the truth that abides in us. And we know this from John chapter 14 and verses 20 to 21, or, you know, Colossians uh, Colossians 1.27, as, as Paul writes to the church, he says, you know, you've got Christ in you, the hope of glory. So there's a truth which abides in us, the truth of the gospel. And this truth is guaranteed forever because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Now, whenever we read the Bible and we look at the writing of John or Paul or Peter, and they speak to the church, they always have eternity in mind, don't they? We always think of, you know, where we're going to go on holiday next week. We never think of the fact that one day we will die, and then we will have all eternity ahead of us. 
This is the way that the New Testament church thinks. They think with eternity in mind. Verse 3, the greeting then comes after the introduction. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son in truth and love. Now, in many ways, this greeting compares with the other New Testament letters, but the greeting qualifies the introduction. How do we know that we are in the truth? How do we know that Christ abides in us? Well, the answer is because of grace, verse 3. We have received salvation, love, forgiveness from God freely. We didn't earn it. We didn't do anything to deserve it. We have been given it. And it's grace and mercy, that beautiful um, Old Testament imagery there of the stubborn love of God, the hesed love of God, the mercy of God that gives us redemption, the compassion that God has for us, grace and mercy, forgiveness, compassion. And the result of having grace and mercy in our lives is peace. You know, Jesus says, doesn't he, to the church, uh, to the, 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 the disciples in John's gospel, you know, peace I leave with you, not as the world gives, give I to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Paul says in Romans 5.1, because we have been justified by faith um, uh, uh, to God, you know, through Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. Because we've been justified by faith in God, we have peace with him through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice again, this isn't temporary, this sense of peace. It's future orientated. It says in verse 3, the peace will be with us. Now, the New Testament church had a lot to worry about. And we, as we experience culture change, have a lot to worry about. I guarantee, you know, because I've been a pastor long enough now to know, there are going to be people here today who are worried about tomorrow. And they're worried about the hospital. Or they're worried about confronting that character at work that you're struggling to get on with or you're worried about circumstances in your family, or you're worried about a fallout, a rift that doesn't seem to be healed. You know, the gospel says, we have peace with God. Jesus says, do not fear, I am with you. And God promises this peace, anchored in the truth, anchored in uh, the objective reality of Christ's death, Christ's resurrection, and the guarantee of peace given to us. And it's verse three, peace from the Father. I was given a present recently, and I, was, um, I wasn't expecting it at all. It was a, a book uh, that I'd been talking uh, to somebody about in, in our church. And a couple of days later, a copy of the book arrived in the post you know, from Amazon, and I was completely overwhelmed. My first reaction was to say, oh, I, I, I didn't deserve that. Have you ever been given that? You're a present, and you said to yourself, this is most unexpected. I didn't deserve it. But that's what God does. God gives us his glory, his peace, his presence. It's a gift of grace. Now, that's our primary identity. And that takes us on, and we'll move quickly now, it takes us on to the second point, which is that our primary identity as being recipients of God's love because of his grace, that fuels us to follow God's ways. It fuels us to follow God's ways. In verses four to six, Verse 4, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as the way we're writing you a new command, but the one I had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. Now, notice the encouragement here. I rejoice, says John, to see walking in truth. He uses this term 
uh, three times. The term walk uh, in the Old Testament is the word derek. Um, it means way or path. You'll see it there in Psalm 1. Jesus in the New Testament speaks about being the way, the truth, and the life. You know, Paul writing to the Ephesians would talk about walking in love. Uh, Galatians 5.16, walking in the Spirit. It means to live in a manner uh, of life, pleasing to God, a manner fueled by grace and, 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 and modeled on what Christ has done for us. And in verse 5, we see what it looks like. We love one another. Now, again, notice how encouraging John is. He's not patronizing anyone. He's not saying, well, I have this worked out. You know, you need to listen to me or you need to be like me. He, he's speaking in the plural. He, he says, we have been told to love one another. Now, maybe what he's doing here is he's, he's understanding that, you know, the church is cracking up a bit under the, the pressure. And we understand that, don't we? You know, whenever the world outside just seems to be squeezing us, we feel it. But John is gentle here. He says in verse 6, this is love that we walk according as to commandments. This is the commandment, just as you've heard from the beginning, so you should walk in it. But what does that look like? Well, we know what it looks like in John chapter 13, when Jesus washes his, the feet of his disciples, he shows real humility. He doesn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but makes himself nothing. He washes the feet even of the people who would betray him. And Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, changes our hearts. And as our hearts are changed, it changes how we think and our will and our hands and how we respond and how we embrace and serve one another before the watching world. And, you know, the, the, the working assumption, again, of the New Testament with heaven in mind, the working assumption of Jesus and Paul and Peter and John and the writer to the Hebrews is that, you know, we live in such a way before this watching world, before this culture which is changing, this culture which is so dark and corrupt, we, we live in such a way that we let our light shine and we shine like stars and we love one another and we love our enemies and we, we love before a watching world and they begin to ask questions. It's really what Peter says in 1 Peter, isn't it? And what, what happens is the grace of Jesus Christ so marks our community, it overspills and overflows into our families, into our schools, and in, into our places of work. People say, you know, there's something curious about that person. I may not fully understand where they're coming from on, you know, this issue or that issue, but there's something different about them. I want to know more. And good preaching, faithful elders like John, and hopefully me, and hopefully Philip here, will always want to remind people of that truth. Um... I'm a shocker when it comes to Tesco's. You know, my wife gives me a list and I go, you know, into Tesco's there and uh, she's given me a list, you know, to get some avocados or something and some bananas and I see something in the chocolate aisle or I see, you know, maybe have a look at the magazines um, and I, I forget what she sends me into Tesco's for. We so often forget the gospel, don't we? That's why we need to be reminded Tell me the old, old story of Jesus and his love, of Jesus and his glory, of unseen things above. You know, we need reminded about the glory, about his presence with us, about the greatness of grace and how that's to be lived out in community. 
So grace reminds us, fuels us to follow God's ways. Thirdly, um, we're warned to be discerning in a day and age of cultural change. Verse 7 there says that many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus in the flesh. Such a one as the deceiver and the Antichrist. Now, It'd be very nice to live in a world, wouldn't it, where we didn't have to face opposition. But the sad truth is, you know, Jesus says that in this world we will have trouble. Now, ultimately, it's Satan, isn't it? That's critical and wise that we perceive the world in those terms. Spiritual evil is a reality. It impacts people's individual lives, and it impacts power systems, as we see today in Eastern Europe. And the sad truth is, in churches, there have been deceptive individuals who have articulated false teaching and false lies. And there's huge debate about the nature of that false teaching in 1 John and 2 John and, and 3 John. But either way, John says here in 2 John verse 8 that, that we have to watch out. Um, you know, Paul writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.16 says, keep a close watch on the doctrine and on your way of life. Just keep a close watch on yourself and on the word. Here John says, you know, by God's good grace, you know, we've, we've persevered, you've experienced, you've labored for such a reward. Don't wreck it by denying the gospel truth that Christ has come, that he's come in the flesh. You see verse 9? Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ doesn't have God. Whoever abides in the teaching is both the Father and the Son. Grace has brought us into a beautiful relationship with God, but that doesn't mean to say that we're kind of robots we have a responsibility. And we have a responsibility to be in close fellowship, to work together. No one runs ahead. You see, again, there's a reference to a character there in um, uh, 3 John verse 9, who, who likes to put himself first, Diotrephes. We, we, we can't be like that. We need to be an unselfish community, a community of love where, 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 where we practice truth and love in Jesus' name. Practically, John warns us not to welcome divisive people into the house, that is, the house church. Now, of course, here, what we need to do is watch out against judgmentalism. We need to watch out about being harsh and sectarian in, in the way that we treat people. Churches are places of grace, but they also must be places of wisdom, and sadly, sometimes in my ministry now of 16 years, I have maybe given people chances in the pulpit and in positions of authority who, who are false people, who truly didn't have the interests of the gospel in their heart. And you do need people like that. Maybe they're more concerned about self-glorification and their own personality and people-pleasing. There were deceivers in the New Testament church, and there are deceivers today. So, in a challenging age, loving truth changes lives. Firstly, because we're loved by God, that's our identity. Secondly, grace fuels us to follow God's ways. Thirdly, we're called to discern. And lastly, in a challenging culture, there's no substitute for meeting personally. Just those last few verses at the end as we finish. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. He says almost exactly the same thing in 3 John there as well. 
Um, COVID was uh, really difficult, wasn't it? It was, it was really awkward. I remember the very first Sunday after COVID, uh, we determined that at least two or three of us would meet in the church. We'd recorded our services, uh, put them up on YouTube, but we determined that every Sunday there would be somebody in the church building praying for the church, just even one or two people. I don't know whether that was against the law or not, uh, but we, uh, we, we, we met and we did that. And I remember the first time we did it, uh, an elder who's um, not a particularly emotional man, uh, I'll not mention his name in case you know him, but not a particularly emotional man, a very solid man, good man, but I remember him being in tears because we couldn't meet together. That really struck me how much, you know, to be in God's house with God's people is such a beautiful, privileged experience, isn't it? To gather together. Um, John Kirkpatrick was talking this week about um, his moratorial year. He went to the Lebanon, he went to Syria, or he met the Syrian church in the Middle East. You know, it's so different for them. They really are being persecuted in a way in which we're not. Warfare, strife, uh, shortages of all sorts. And yet when they meet together, there's a richness and a vitality and a joy. It's like a foretaste of glory, isn't it, when we meet? So sharing the gospel in the 21st century, it is hard. It's getting harder, isn't it? But it was hard in the first century as well. But the message is the same. There's a beauty of the gospel, isn't there? A beauty of God's truth as it changes lives. And there's something deeply attractive about that. And my prayer for you here in Connor is that as you immerse yourself in the gospel, even over the quiet summer months, you're reinvigorated and refreshed in it. You're irrigated by the Spirit through the Word that you'll bear fruit and become a beautiful picture of God's loving community to a cynical but a watching world outside. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the gospel, for the good news that we have. We pray together, united as a congregation, we would resound with um, good news in our hearts, our voices, but also with our lives as we love one another before a watching world. We pray, Lord God, that you bless your word to the people today as we ask these things for the glory of your Son in our lives and through this church in Jesus' name. Amen.